Welcome to the Upper Room Podcast. Thank you so much for stopping by. I'm Pastor Carl McLaughlin from Calvary Pentecostal Church in Euless, Texas. We're located in Dallas-Fort Worth, where 8 million call DFW home. Whether you're tuning in to Sunday or Wednesday's message, we pray that you will find words of encouragement. It is our mission to provide a positive and encouraging voice in the midst of uncertainty. I pray that you will be blessed by today's episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome or welcome back to the Upper Room Podcast. We are so happy you've decided to listen today. This Wednesday night, we heard from Brother Napoleon Burt, and he spoke an incredible message about worship. This message was encouraging and uplifting, and we hope you enjoy it. Turn with me to the book of Revelation. We're gonna, I, I had several scriptures go through my mind, but I want to read a couple scriptures in Revelation, and you'll know, the chap, you'll, you'll know exactly what we're talking about. Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, and Revelation chapter 5, somewhere around verse 13, and then we're going to look at Luke, and then we'll have you have a seat. Revelation chapter 4. We'll describe it, but we'll, we'll, we're just going to read a couple verses. Revelation chapter 4, verse 11. You have to read this whole chapter, but, but look at verse 11. It says, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. And then Revelation chapter 5, 4 and 5 you have to read together. Chapter 5, start with verse 11 and read through the end of the chapter. It says this, And I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them Heard I saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sits upon the throne and unto the lamb forever. And the four beasts said, amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshiped him that liveth forever and ever. And I want to read one more scripture uh, in the book of Luke chapter 7. Um, Luke chapter 7, and you'll see how this connects. Luke chapter 7, Luke chapter 7, starting with verse 44. I promise I want to have you have a seat. Luke chapter 7, starting with verse 44. Uh, verse 45. And Jesus said, uh, is that right? No, I'm in, I'm, I'm, okay, it is Luke 7. 44, I'm right. And he turned to the woman and said unto Simon, Seest thou this woman? I entered into thine house, 
and thou gavest me no water for my feet. But she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Thou gavest me no kiss, but this woman, since the time I came in, hath not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil thou didst not anoint, but this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. And he said to her, thy sins are forgiven. And they that sat at meat with him began to say within themselves, who is this that forgives sins also? And he said to the woman, thy faith has saved thee, go in peace. So here's the thought, and we're going to go before the Lord in prayer, and I'll have you have a seat. Here's the thought. How worthy, how worth, how, how much worth does God have in your mind? How much is he worth? What is the value of your worship? That says a reflective thought. I want you to think about it. How much is he worth? How much is your salvation worth? How worthy is your God? Pray with me. Merciful God, I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you because you love me, Lord God. Because you loved your people. You're an action God. You loved us so much, God, that you did the work to bring us into your presence. And God, this night, we want to reflect on what you've done, and we want to give you worship, oh God. We want to elevate our worship. Help us, God, to elevate our worship in our minds and in our spirits, oh God. And then when we leave the building, help us to elevate our worship in the way that we live. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. Bless your people because they're your people. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Please have a seat. Please have a seat. So I won't, I won't go rushing in without giving honor to my pastor. Guys, I love my pastor. I love this church. I, I really do. I really do. I've been saved for 44 years, and I've been in good churches. I grew up in, I grew up under a man that I love. I call him my father in ministry. But I've, I, 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 I've never been in a congregation where, first of all, the man of God is so passionate, so passionate about the truth of the word of God. And that he's got a group behind him that are so passionate about getting to heaven and about the word of God. I mean, when I say to somebody, let's go to heaven together, I believe that. I believe that in my spirit, and, and, and I believe that the people who respond here in this church, they're like, yeah, let's go to heaven together. I love the atmosphere. I really do. 
So I give honor to my pastor. I give honor to my bishop. I give honor to my beautiful wife, my partner who's helping me get to heaven. I thank the Lord for her. Um, so I want to give honor. But then I want to go into this word. So here's my thought, guys. When I think about the scene in heaven, Revelation chapter 4 is an amazing chapter. It really capsulizes. When we get to heaven, I don't know that we're going to be worried about who didn't get there. And I don't know we're going to be too worried about anything else. But we're going to be right there in the presence of the throne room of God. And I think sometimes we get wrapped up in the cares of our life. Don't get me wrong, life can be tough and challenging. But sometimes we get so wrapped up in the cares of our lives that we forget about how much majesty this God has. We're talking in Isaiah chapter 57, verse 15. The scripture tells us he sits on the seat of eternity. He occupies all of eternity. I mean, the seat of the universe is massive, and God is bigger than the universe. When we think about the characteristics of this God, this God is, you know, we like to use these words, words like he's omnipotent. This means God's got all the power. There is no power except the power that God has. He's got all power. There is no power that's rivaling him. He's got all power. But the scripture doesn't tell us that just he has, um, that he's omnipotent, but he's omniscient. He knows all things. This blows my mind when I think about it. Because there was a day when you could know a lot about a lot of things. Or you could know everything about one or two subjects. But that's just not true. You can't possibly know everything about anything anymore. And, 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 and that's true about the present. I'm talking just knowing everything about anything right now. I can't even know everything about medicine anymore. I mean, we got all these subspecialties because you can't know everything about anything. But our God knows everything about everything. <laughs> And it just blows my mind. Not just everything about everything now, but he knows everything about everything in the past. He knows everything about everything in the present. And he knows everything about everything in the future. That's massive knowledge. You have to respect a mind like that. But then he's not only got all, he's not only got all power, and not, is, not only is he omniscient, but he's omnipresent. He's everywhere present all at the same time. I mean, he's here filling this room. 
He's at my house, filling my house. He's over in China, filling China. He's everywhere, everywhere at all times. He's filling Mars. He's filling the, the, the rest of the galaxies. He's everywhere in his fullness at all times. That's mind-blowing. The scripture then lets us know he's transcendent. He's above all things. But he's imminent. He's a very present help in the time of trouble. He's right here in the midst. He's above everything, but he's right here in the midst of our lives. Think about that kind of God. I mean, and I could go on. There's a list of these attributes when you think about this God. And when I think about him, if I really stop and reflect and just put all the other cares and thoughts of life aside and begin to think about him, I would find myself like they were, like, like the description in Revelation chapter 4. In Revelation chapter 4, you see angels, you see beasts, you see all these different beings, and they all fall down prostrate before this God, the one that sits on the throne because of his majesty, because of these attributes and more that I, I don't want to go too far in. I just want to set the tone, set the scene for what was going on in Revelation chapter 4. And then in Revelation chapter 5, we see that out of the midst of this throne, comes one seemingly into the sea of humanity. And the one that comes out of the throne into the sea of humanity, the scripture describes him as a lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So in the mind of God, when we go to, when we go to John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was word, word was with God, and the word was God. In, 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 my, in my mind, what I see according to the scripture is God issues out his presence from the throne into the sea of humanity. Because isn't that what John chapter 1 verse 14 says? And the, the, the word was made flesh. The word was the lamb of God come into the sea of humanity in order to redeem us. God's presence becomes humanity in order to redeem us. And when he does this, when we think about this, you, you read the rest of Revelation, and what you see in the rest of Revelation is because he comes into the sea of humanity when no one else was able, you, you see there was a search made in Revelation chapter 5, there was a search made in heaven and in earth and beneath the earth, and no one was found that was worthy to take the book out of the hand of this great being that's sitting on the throne. No one was worthy to take the, the book out of his hand and release the seals from, his, from the book. And so out of the throne, in other words, the presence of God issues forth into the sea of humanity, and the presence of God takes the book and releases the seal. And when he releases the seal, all these, the wrath of God is poured out onto those who were not counted into the Lamb's blood, under the Lamb's blood, or into the body of Christ. 
So when the, 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 the people around the throne see the presence of God issue forth into the sea of humanity, come out, take the seal, take the book and release the seals, they, they, they begin to sing a song. And they sing a song of honor and worthiness to the Lamb, giving honor and glory to the one that was on the throne and to the Lamb of God. In other words, not only to God, but to the fact that God comes and he, he walks into the sea of humanity. He does what is necessary to protect us from the wrath that is to come because of our sins. My sins would isolate me from God. But God did not want that to be, so God himself comes into the sea of humanity and God covers me. If you, if you can really reflect, I'm not asking you for your deep, dark secrets, but if you can really reflect on your flaws, your shortcomings, your weaknesses, the evil that was in my heart and my mind, the things that are shortcomings where I wish I could be better and I wasn't. And I think about those things. Any one of them could, could cast me into hell separated from God for an eternity. But it's not just one. I've had multiple faults. But this God says, I'm not going to let that guy go to hell. This God says, he's inadequate by himself. He can't do it. But this is what I'm going to do. In Isaiah chapter 59 and verse 16, the scripture says, when there was a search made out, God said, there's nobody found that was able. So his own arm brought him salvation. So the arm of God reaches out into the sea of humanity. The arm of God brings forth salvation. He covers my sins so that I could be worthy to be in his presence. When I think about that, it makes my mind want to worship him. When I think about who he is and I think about who I am, it makes my mind want to worship him. It makes my spirit say, God, how is it you can love me like that? How is it that you can love me? You know, my, you know everything about me. How is it you can love me like that? But that's the God we serve. This is what was going on in Luke chapter 7. In Luke chapter 7, so... I'm not sure I got, I've got all that, all the details of that story in my mind. But, so I believe that this Mary is Mary, the brother 
um, the, the sister of, of, of Lazarus. And the, the setting, if you read several scriptures, read Luke chapter 7, uh, and you read John uh, chapter 11 and John chapter 12, you put those together. I, I think that this setting is right before the Passion Week. And Jesus had been in a, a he'd gone and done his Judean ministry. They were riled up in, in Judea and they were ready to crucify him. So Jesus goes outside of Judea to do his Perean ministry where he lies low for a few months until time for him to be crucified. And during that period of time of his Perean ministry, when he's lying low, I think about this, divinity can't lie low. Even when he's trying to keep a low profile, he's still God. So during the Perean ministry, he raises Lazarus from the dead. And when he raises Lazarus from the dead, in Luke chapter 11, I'm sorry, John chapter 11, he raises Lazarus from the dead. In John chapter 12, there's a dinner being served, and they're honoring Jesus, and they're honoring Lazarus. And people show up, and the scripture says, not only do they show up to see Jesus, but they show up to see Lazarus because it's amazing to them. It's amazing to see a guy that they knew was dead. He'd been in the dead in the grave for three or four days. And Jesus shows up and Jesus raises him from the dead. People from afar are coming in to see not only Jesus, but to see Lazarus. When I think about that, I, I, just, just, just a passing comment. When I think about that, I think about if I can live like one who's been resurrected, and I have been. I used to live a dead life. But now God has resurrected my life. People who knew who I was can look at me now and say, ooh, I want to know that God. They don't want to just see Jesus, but they want to see what Jesus has done in your life. We ought to live, live so that people want to see who this God is that has made this change in your life. So they show up not only to see Jesus, but they show up to see Lazarus. And while they're there, I believe that that meal or that time period, if not that specific meal, that time period is where Luke chapter 7 also occurs. Jesus is at the house of Simon and Mary shows up. Mary, probably the, the Mary who's the brother, who's the sister of Lazarus. She's seen who Jesus is. He's a friend of their family. She's seen this amazing work that Jesus has done, and she's not a savory person. It changes her life. And so she shows up, and she takes this costly oil and anoints Jesus and washes his feet with her tears and 
and wipes the feet with the hair of her head. This is her level of, you got to, if you can get this right, this is the level of worship that she has for Jesus. She understands who he is. She understands that this is, in John chapter 11, verse 25, we find that Jesus says that he's the resurrection and the life. She, she's seen that to be true because after Jesus says that, he then goes to the grave and he causes her brother to be resurrected. Her life will never be the same again because of the impact of Jesus. She's like, I've got to do different. This man is worth my honor. He's worth my sacrifice. He's worth my worship. And so when you see Mary wiping his feet with her hair and, and, and crying over his feet and kneel down low before him and taking a costly oil and anointing him is because this is the level of worth that God has in her mind. And so my question to us, what I want us to see is, what is it that we value so much that we can't give it to God? What is the level of worship in our mind? What is God worth in our minds? What is he worth? Is he worth us laying low at his feet? Is he worth that thing that we value so much, that alabaster box and the oil that was in? Is he worth that? How much is he worth in our minds? I just want to elevate our worship get us to understand who God is, how much sin separates us, and the fact that the God that we serve, that God is able, according to Isaiah chapter 44, verse 22, and Isaiah chapter 45, verse 23, that God is capable. Uh, Isaiah 44 and 22 lets us know that he can forgive sin. Only God can forgive sins, but Jesus forgives sin. He's an amazing God. This God walked the earth and gave his life so that we could be sin-free. Doesn't the scripture say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, he says he made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin in order that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. So God becomes man so that God could lay our sins on that man so that he could take those sins and nail them according to Colossians chapter 2, around verse 12 to 15. He, lets, he nails them to the cross. He makes an open show of the people, the forces of, of the enemy that wanted to do us in. He makes an open show of them by nailing our sins to the cross. That's the God we serve. He's worthy of anything that I'm holding on to. I've got to elevate my worship. 
I elevate my worship by elevating in my mind who God is, understanding his character and his nature, and then understanding my shortcomings, understanding my personal weaknesses. I want to give you just three real quick examples of three real quick examples of what God has done in the Old Testament and how what we have in God is better. He saved the best for us, guys. He saved the best for us. So I, I really need your mind for a second, for just a couple minutes. So think about this. We think in all about what God did in the past. I'm just trying to elevate our worship, elevate our concept of who God is. We think in all about Mount Sinai. You think about Mount Sinai. It blows my mind. I think about Mount Sinai. God rescues them from Egypt. He brings them to Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, he gives them the word of God. He gives them the Ten Commandments. You, you guys, maybe some of you guys have seen that movie, The Ten Commandments. But, I mean, it gives you a good visual. The mountain was on fire, but not being consumed. And then Moses had the privilege of going up into the mountain and communing with God. In Exodus chapter 24 and verse 12, one of my favorite scriptures, God says to Moses, you come up to the mountain and just be there. And while Moses is there, God gives him the law. And according, according to Exodus chapter 31, verse 18, the scripture tells us that he gives them the law written with the finger of God on tables of stone. Get that visual in your mind. The Spirit of God writes on stone the laws for Israel. God's law written on tables of stone. That must have been an awesome sight. I mean, can, it, can you get that in your mind? That's an awesome sight. But think about it. That was the old covenant. In the new covenant, God was like, that's not good enough. I've given them my laws, and they don't seem to be able to keep them. So here's what I'm going to do. He says in, in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34, he says, there's going to come a time. I'm no longer going to write on tables of stone, but I'm going to write my laws on tables of flesh. I'm going to put my word inside of them so that my word is in their minds and in their hearts and in their spirits. So this awesome God that gives us the written word, written on tables of stone, said that's not good enough. I'm going to write it inside of them. That's what the Holy Ghost is. We don't value the Holy Ghost enough. It's God's law written in my on the tables of my heart, written in my mind. God said, I'm not writing it on stone. I'm going to take my finger and I'm going to write it on Napoleon's heart. 
I'm going to write it in his mind. How am I going to change that guy and his degenerate self? I'm going to write with my finger in his mind and on his heart. That's the God we serve. Elevate your worship. And then I think about this. So I think about that. That's, that's mind-blowing. But then I think about this. In Exodus chapter 15, Exodus chapter 15, verses, oh, I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 16, verses 4 and 5. Exodus chapter 16, verses 4 and 5. They're on their way to Mount Sinai, and God gives them manna. And he begins the manna there, and he feeds them with manna from that time all the way till Joshua, to the book of Joshua, when they get to the promised land. So for 40 years, they get manna. They get bread from heaven to meet their needs. And we think about that. How does God do that? He just makes something out of nothing, and it's the substance that they need to provide them their nutrition. In Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 15, Nehemiah is reflecting back on that, and he talks about how God fed them for 40 years with this manna. And we think that's an amazing thing, that God just kept producing something out of nothing and giving them what they needed to meet their nutritional needs blows our mind. But that was, that's, that's mind-blowing. But that's not the true manna. If you go to the book of John, chapter 6, start with verse 32 and read through verse 35, you really kind of need to read the whole chapter. But what you find is Jesus first, he feeds the 5,000. Uh, at the beginning of the chapter, and, 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 and he does some other things. Then he meets them on the other side, and he's teaching about manna. And he says, I am the bread of life. He says, he says Moses didn't give them manna, but my father gave them manna, and my father gives, them the, is, is, gives the true manna. And the true manna is Jesus who is the substance that we need. He's the nutrition that we need to get through this life. God gives us manna when he gave us Jesus. And see, Jesus is the Holy Spirit living in us. So God gives us this manna living inside of our hearts now. Instead of having physical manna, we now have God, the bread of God, the living bread living inside of us. We have to elevate our worship. I mean, don't get me wrong, thinking about them feed, him feeding them for 40 years in the wilderness, that's, that's, that's an amazing thought. And it was real history. But then God gave us the true manna. He gave us Jesus inside of us. We have the word of God 
inside of us. What kind of God, holy and worthy, separate from sinners, would choose to come and live inside of us and be the manna, the word of God inside of us to give me the nutrition that I need for my mind and for my spirit so that I could be what he wants me to be. I'm so inadequate by myself, but God said, I'm going to do this. I'm going to come and live inside of him to give him the nutrition, the spiritual nutrition that he needs so that he can get from earth to heaven. We need to elevate our worship. Then I just, one more, one more, one more example, and I'm going to be done. Then I thought about this one. I thought about not only is he the word written on the tables of stone, now written on tables of our hearts. Not only is he manna, the nutrition that we need, but now he's manna inside of us. But you remember in Exodus chapter 17, verse 6, they, they're on their way out of Egypt, again, to the mount, and they, they start murmuring. They want water. And they are given water from a rock. So the same God, in fact, if you go to Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 15, it not only celebrates or commemorates that he gave them manna, but it also celebrates that he gave them water. That's what he did for those 40 years. So he gave them water from a rock to meet their needs. So he's the source. Of, I mean, think about that. How does a water give rock? I mean, how does a rock give water? How does a rock give water? How do you do that? <laughs> but this rock gives water to them. God is the source of the thing that we need for life. He's the source of our living water. In Jeremiah chapter 2 and verse 13, this, the, the God is... God is is, is, is chastising them. And he says, my people have committed two evils. Not only have they forsaken the fountain of living water, but then they've hewn out cisterns that are not the source of water. So here's the, here's the thing. You're, you're thinking, man, Israel, Israel's like that. How could they do that when God had met their needs over and over again for so many years? How could Israel forsake the fountain of living water and turn to these, these, these false sources that, 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 that don't give water? But check ourselves. Because all of us get, I, I know I'm guilty. I start to think about how can I meet my needs? I got to work harder. I gotta save money. I've gotta do this. I got, you know, I'm not able to do it. I've got to keep my eyes on the fountain of living water, the one that meets my needs. I can't meet my needs. There's something that can prevent me from meeting my own needs, but nothing can prevent God from meeting my needs. He's the fountain of living water. 
he brings water from a rock for Israel to meet their needs. And the thought of that blows our mind. But then in the New Testament, in John, uh, in John chapter 7, you know this verse, this famous verse, John chapter 7, verse 37 through 39. So Jesus is at the Feast of the Tabernacles in John chapter 7. And the Feast of the Tabernacles is important because the Feast of the Tabernacles is a celebration of God meeting the needs of Israel for 40 years. So they, they celebrate one of, the, one of the three pilgrimage feasts, and they commemorate the fact that God gave them manna and met their needs for 40 years in the wilderness. Uh, that's what the Feast of Tabernacles is. So Jesus goes to the Feast of Tabernacles in John chapter 7, and in John chapter 7, uh, verse 37 through 39, he says, in, that, in the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus makes this proclamation. And the proclamation that he makes is to the fact of, if someone believes on me, out of his belly is going to flow rivers of living water. This was Jesus making the proclamation that just like the God that you serve, that's the God of the Feast of Tabernacles, and he gave water and bread to meet the needs of your fathers for years in the past, just like he did that. In fact, I'm that God. This is what Jesus is saying, literally. That God gave water. He was the fountain of living water. If you believe on me, Jesus is saying, out of your belly is going to flow rivers of living water. I'm the source, Jesus is saying, of the living water. So we're not missing anything because we didn't see him bring water from a rock. When we receive the Holy Spirit, the God of the Feast of Tabernacles, the God that met their needs for 40 years, that God is coming to live inside of us and out of our belly flows rivers of living water because God abides on the inside. So what picture I'm trying to create in your mind is we, we stand in awe when we think about those amazing acts and feats of the Old Testament. We think about God writing on tables of stone. We think about God giving what is it for 40 years to meet their nutritional needs in the wilderness. And we think about God giving them water from a rock. But that God, that God, left something better for us. If I can all with that, then why don't I all that that God has chosen to live inside of me? He's providing me written word in my mind and my heart. He's providing me the spiritual nutrition that I need. He's providing me living water. What is he worth? 
We ought to be like Mary. We ought to be like the beast in, in, in Revelations chapter 4. We ought to be like the crowd in Revelations chapter 5. We ought to find ourselves, when we reflect on him, bow low before his feet, going, God, you're worthy. You're worthy. But God, you're worthy. My body's tired, but you're worthy. God, you're asking me to live this kind of life, but you're worthy. God, you're telling me to push away from the table and fast, but you're worthy. God, you're telling me I can't spend all my time in front of the TV, but you're worthy. God, you're telling me I can't walk like they walk. I got to separate myself, but you're worthy. God, you're telling me to dress a certain way, but I say, God, you're worthy. God, you're telling me to give you of my offerings, some of that money to you, to your temple. But God, you're worthy. Elevate God in our minds. Elevate our level of worship. Recognize the chasm between me and God. There's a huge chasm. He's so holy. He's so worthy. He's so righteous. There's none like him. And I am so unholy, unworthy, unrighteous. But God said, I'm going to rescue him. And he bridged the gap. The writer, he, the writer of Romans says this. John Michael made reference to this. What can separate us from his love? Can any of these things, go through uh, to Romans chapter 8, uh, verse 35 through, through the end of the chapter. Nothing can separate us. If he would not withhold his very own son, that is the physical expression of who he was, if he would not withhold that, if he would step into the sea of humanity and offer his physical life for us, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? He's worthy. That's all. That's all. Here's, here's my, here's my, I'm, I'm, I'm done. I'm done. I just, I, I hope I have accomplished this purpose to begin to think about who God is. Stop being in awe so much. I mean, don't get me wrong. We can look at the Old Testament and we can be all, all, all those things. I mean, it's, it's amazing what God did. It's amazing. But in all of that, he did something greater when he chose to come and live inside of us. See, the Holy Ghost is not just so you can speak in tongues. The Holy Ghost is the presence of God living inside of you to change the very character and nature of who you are. <laughs> to bridge the chasm between you and God to make you worthy 
because you can't do it by yourself. He makes you worthy to be able to be in his presence. He wants intimate fellowship with you, and you couldn't do it. So he made it possible so that you could have intimate fellowship. The scripture says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 11 through 16, lets us know we have the mind of God. How do we have the mind of God? Because the mind of God has come to live and reside in us. That's how valuable we are in the mind of God. So we got to be like Mary. We got to make sure that we love much, so much that there's nothing I would withhold from him. Anything in my life, he's worth it. Any sacrifice, he's worth it. I don't do it just because somebody tells me. It's not the law. It's my love for him. It's my mind of worship that should drive my actions. What an incredible message we heard today from Brother Bert. Hey, if you want to stay connected with the church podcast, do not forget to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Calvary Ulyss for updates every single week when we post a new video. And if you want to listen more to the podcast, do not forget every single Tuesday and Friday, we have an all new episode. Um, again, Tuesday covering Sunday's message and Friday covering Wednesday's message. And we hope to see you there. And we cannot wait to see what God does through this podcast. Thank Thank you guys so much for listening. We hope to see you Friday on the Upper Room Podcast. God bless.